research that resonates. Schweitzer has not been wrong on any of his years and years of reporting on the Bidens. Investigations that matter. If your last name wasn't Biden, do you think you would have been asked to be on the board of Burisma? I don't know. I don't know. Probably not. But that's, you know, I, I don't think that there's a lot of things that would have happened in my life that, uh, that if my last name wasn't Biden. The only entities, the only people that would report on this, and Peter Schweitzer, who deserves a Medal of Freedom, in my view, This is The Drill Down with Peter Schweitzer. Hi, this is Peter Schweitzer, and welcome to The Drill Down, where we relentlessly expose cronyism, corruption, and the abuse of power in Washington, D.C. My co-host, as always, is author and vice president of GAI, Eric Eggers. Eric, how are you doing? Peter, I am great. Any week without you in the office, you know, it's a struggle, but we will (laughs) soldier on and find a way to endure. Yes, I'm sure the uh, proletarian revolution is underway. I am actually in Texas right now for this podcast, and we have a terrific guest today. I'm really excited to have him. Uh, Adam Angievsky uh, is the president of Open the Books, uh, which is a wonderful organization started in 2011. And unlike a lot of organizations out there, Eric, that are kind of regurgitating old stuff, this is an organization that really, since its founding in 2011, has been breaking news. Um, So we want to talk to him a little bit today about his methods, and then we're going to talk about two selective people that they've done recent exposés on. Eric, I know you're going to be interested in in drilling down on those topics. No, I love the work that Open the Books does. Um, I think there's actually many big stories that behind the headline tends to be the grain of the research, the open records requests, uh, because what they do is they document where the actual money goes, right? It's Woodward and Bernstein for the 21st century. They follow the money. And unfortunately, when it comes to Gavin Newsom and Anthony Fauci, a lot of money has ended up in places that I think a lot of people would be very upset by. That's right. Well, let's welcome Adam to the show. Uh, Adam, uh, great to have you join us. I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the techniques and the investigative methodologies you use, because it's very different than what most organizations do. It's based on data. It's based on follow the money. So tell us a little bit about how Open the Books operates and how you do your investigative work. Well, Peter, as we like to say, hard facts, no spin. Every dime online in real time, we follow the money. So last year, we filed 55,000 Freedom of Information Act requests. It was the most in American history, and our team successfully captured $8 trillion worth of federal, state, and local spending. We display it all for free so regular people can follow the money, hold the political class accountable for their tax and spend decisions. We display this on our website at OpenTheBooks.com. And I just, I just want to say it's a real privilege to be here on your podcast here this morning, Peter, because you've been a board advisor to us for at least the last five or six years. You're an inspiration. Every day we get up to hold the political class accountable, and you've actually pioneered well, this concept. Well, uh, thank you. I'm very uh, excited to be associated with Open the Books, and really that's why the organization is called Open the Books, right? Because it's about letting the American people see actually how money is being spent. So you've got on staff, really, you've got data scientists and researchers, right? I mean, you're not relying on uh, people that just Google results. You're actually pulling out that raw data, and you're making it accessible to people. Tell us about the kind of employee you have and the sort of team uh, that is behind you. So most of the team, every single year, about 27 full-time equivalents, they're dedicated to data capture. And Peter, as you know, that's what separates us from any other organization in the country. Uh, you know, filing that 55,000 FOIAs, following up with those 
units of government, about 50,000 substantial units of government. I mean, for crying out loud, we've got the federal checkbook all the way back to the year 2001, all 50 state checkbooks, and virtually every single salary and pension record of every public employee in the entire country, including those right in your own, you know, K-12 school districts, your own municipalities, anywhere across the country. We have virtually all salaries of public employees in our database. And I think it's your access to the money that public employees have and they take that's allowed you to break such incredible stories. Um, we actually did a podcast a few weeks ago about Gavin Newsom and as the Silicon Valley Bank collapsed and you know, the shockwaves it sent throughout the financial sector. Um, but you guys were able to, to connect dots not just between Silicon Valley Bank and Gavin Newsom, but between the money that goes in California to his wife. And I think, you know, as, as you know, transparency is ultimately the solution to help cause reform. People have to be shamed into stopping the behaviors that most people would find to be just wildly unacceptable. What did you guys find in California with Gavin Newsom and the money that ends up going to his wife specifically? Well, we found that the Newsoms, between Gavin Newsom and his wife, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, they are quadruple-dipping taxpayer dollars. Now, Eric, you know that I'm from Illinois. It is the Super Bowl of corruption. And we're used to our politicians at least double, maybe triple-dipping the public trough. The Newsom here, we've tied out a quadruple dip. Okay, so let's kind of break it down. So Jennifer Siebel Newsom, she's got a nonprofit film and school curriculum organization. They're in 5,000 schools, 11,000 classrooms. They say 2.6 million students in all 50 states have seen their films and used their curriculums. So it's a big footprint. When a school uses their curriculum or films, they actually license them. They pay a royalty back to her nonprofit. Over the course of the last 10 years, Jennifer Siebel Newsom has taken $1.5 million in salary from her nonprofit. She doesn't create her own films through the nonprofit. She founded a for-profit film production company. That for-profit company of hers uh, has been paid $1.6 million over the course of the last decade to create the films that the nonprofit licenses. So right there, you've got over $3 million flowing back into the Newsom's pocket. On the fourth dip here uh, is the governor himself. He stars in many of her films. They, uh, they encourage people to vote for politicians just like Gavin Newsom and support the policies that he espouses. They uh, act, ask students to get involved. And when they do, the Newsoms actually have a 501c4 advocacy organization called California Partners Project. That's where the students can get active. That was created expressly to drive her public policy agenda as the quote-unquote first partner of the state of California. So incredibly, one of the things that Governor Gavin Newsom did right when he was elected as a subdivision of the Office of Governor, he established the Office of First Partner. It has nine staffers, a million-dollar annual appropriation to push her public policy agenda. But, of course, it wasn't enough. They established this 501c4, the California Partners Organization, for more funding, more lobbying power, and, and a way to get I'd the just like to point active. out that uh, Gavin Newsom's wife's office does not abide by the two-pizza rule. Uh, so is it, is it possible that this is an unprecedented thing? I mean, does anybody, I know in Florida, I don't believe there's an office of the first partner. Is this unique to California or is this, is this exist anywhere else? 
So we haven't found it anywhere else in all 50 states. And obviously, Governor Gavin Newsom, he's trying to model the, the White House model of the first lady, right? And so we actually had a legal opinion done. We spent donor money on a legal opinion to see if Governor Gavin Newsom had the power to create this office for his wife. And, and the legal opinion says, it, you know, look, in California with the attorney general, they're never going to, going to take up the issue. And so it's, it's probably legal. We could test it around the edges, but it's just not worth our time. Because we felt there had to be some limit on the governor's power to create this office. Otherwise, he could establish the office of the first son, the first <laughs> grandmother. But it looks like in the Golden State, the governor actually, you know, has has well, the power. Well, to me, to do this it. is a classic example of how uh, cronyism and corruption works. Right? You leverage a position of public trust, in this case, the governorship, and you leverage that uh, to help out family members and their entities and their organizations. And then you also use those ostensibly nonprofit organizations to enhance and grow the political power. So, I mean, this is a, uh, I think, a hugely important story. I hope you keep doing work on it. Um, are there other elements that you see to uh, Gavin Newsom and the manner in which he runs California? I mean, California is very much a one-party state. Uh, Republicans don't, I think, hold any statewide office. So there's not a lot of checks. And this kind of political arrangement, regardless of political party, oftentimes open up opens up avenues for this kind of overreach. You see other things that Gavin Newsom is doing in this space as well. Yes, um, specific to the scenario that we just laid out, Peter, as you know, these things always get a little bit worse. So one of the first things besides creating the office of first partner that Gavin Newsom did uh, right from the beginning of when he was took office is that the California State Board of Education issued new guidance in the California schools, actually recommending his <laughs> wife's Jennifer Siebel Newsom's Amazing. films and curriculum. And now, and now there's actually legislation in the California General Assembly to codify this into law that individual schools would not have a choice over their curriculum, but the curriculum would come off the State Board of Education. So you can see how they're trying to tie this, tie the hands of of Californians from one end of the spectrum right to the other. And then if you delve into the curriculum, this is exactly what everybody across the entire country should be scared of, Peter. So the, the films actually, the best way I can describe a couple of these films is that it is a pipeline to pornography in the public schools. If you're a middle schooler, you're going to see upside down naked or nearly naked strippers with tape over their chests. If you're in high school, you're going to be, uh, when you're a student captive in the classroom, you're actually, and these things are very hard to talk about, uh, but we have to educate ourselves because this is what millions of students are seeing as they're held captive in the classroom. They're seeing women in porno pornographic videos, still shots of na naked or nearly naked women being slapped, handcuffed, uh, brutalized uh, in these still shots of pornographic videos. And then what you also find is the website URL of the porn video itself in the film, so students have a roadmap to further exploration once they leave yeah, the classroom. Another example. So it's kind of the opposite of Florida. We get criticized for don't say gay, but we also don't show porn. So, you know, it's like that's the way we pursue just pursue education in the state of Florida. Like, what's the reaction to Californians when this has been exposed, both between like the just the crude 
and discuss the nature of the content, but also the self-dealing the newsrooms are involved in. Yeah, I think, you know, Californians react poorly to it, of course, because they just don't know that this is going on. And this goes right to why we dig and claw and work so hard at OpenTheBooks.com. Like, like no governor and no governor's spouse should ever be involved in any of this. Like I said, this should scare every parent because they're in all 50 states. They're in 11,000 classrooms, 5,000 schools. And they've set up this legalized money laundering scheme to create problems, solve them, and cash checks along the way and poison your school curriculum or your students. Yeah, this is another example of how corruption has consequences. It's not just about the principals, the politicians, and their family members getting rich. Oftentimes, this goes along with some sort of agenda that's going to affect us and our families. Well, uh, uh, you know, Eric and Adam, we could talk about Gavin Newsom for hours, I'm sure, but I want to get to your uh, Tony Fauci research because, again, you guys have done a lot of groundbreaking work, not giving opinions, not giving thoughts, but actual specific information involving Tony Fauci, um, who was, of course, a White House advisor to Joe Biden before that, sort of the leading medical official in the United States. States government. Tell us about the research you uh, located on Tony Fauci and how you guys obtained it. So two years ago, starting in my then column at Forbes in January of 2021, when we looked at our federal payrolls, we found incredibly that the number one most highly compensated federal bureaucrat was Dr. Anthony Fauci. He out-earned the President of the United States, four-star generals in the United States military, and all of his, all the millions of his colleagues at the federal level. And many people, Peter, had questions as to how. How can a subdirector, you know, the head of a, a sub-agency, of a sub-agency of health and human services, out-earn everybody? And so to get an answer to that question, we filed four Freedom of Information Act requests with the National Institutes of Health. That's Fauci's employer. Those requests were ignored. So we sued him in federal court with our legal partner, Judicial Watch, the Washington, D.C.-based public interest law firm. And over the course then of a year and a half to two years, finally, we got thousands of pages of production. It came to a head about a year ago in January of 2022. And Peter, you probably remember this U.S. Senate hearing where you had the U.S. Senator from Kansas, Roger Marshall, He was quizzing Anthony Fauci on his finances in a Senate hearing, and Fauci misled the senator. He misled the American people and Congress. He said, my finances are fully transparent, and they weren't so. At that time, his agency was holding 1,200 pages that they admitted to, and they were holding that for the last eight months and not producing it as a part of our federal lawsuit, And, and Fauci knew that. And then on that open mic, at the end of that quizzing, Fauci melted down. He called the U.S. senator a moron. And you can't be America's top doctor if you're melting down on national television. This was one of the top news stories of the day. This was Fauci's code red moment. And our team at OpenTheBooks.com, we had prepped Marshall. It was our information used in that hearing. My column at Forbes was cited. This was a big moment, and we had a big moment in Fauci's Code red yeah, it's amazing. And, and I think what I love about what your organization does is you just show the numbers and this breakdown of the the Fauci household net worth, what it was in 2019, $7.5 million. You know, the Fauci is doing pretty well. 
But then at the beginning of 2020, COVID happens. I think we all recall the profound levels of economic uncertainty, markets crashing. And in the last three years, I mean, what you show unequivocally is that COVID was very, very good for the Fauci's. Their net worth increased by uh, almost two, more than two thirds from 2019 to now being over $12 uh, million. That's insane. And um, I appreciate the bravery and the transparency you've been able to force into the Fauci household. Uh, I mean, and it's because of the relationships between Fauci and his wife. Once again, it's like, the, you know, Peter Schweitz has done a lot of great reporting about how the Biden family all seems to be making money off of China, right? All the members of the Newsom household and taking money out of the California tax treasury. And it's so it appears to be also that multiple Fauci's are making money off of the federal government. Yeah, between uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who last year, right before he retired, made 480000 Like I said, he out-earned everybody at the federal level. You also have his wife, Christine Grady, and she's the chief bioethicist at Fauci's employer, the National Institutes of Health. And Christine Grady out-earned the vice president last year. So if you add up two of their federal salaries, if you tack on 35% for the cost of benefits... You have Dr. Anthony Fauci and his wife. They're a powerful couple in Washington, D.C., and at taxpayer expense last year, they cleaned off nearly $1 million. Well, Adam, give us your thoughts um, finally. Again, we could talk about Fauci for several hours, but but give us your thoughts um, on where this should go. I mean, we get this comment all the time on our Biden research, on the other work that we've done, where people say nothing ever happens. You know, and my point is always, well, you know, you don't, you know, if you're Paul Revere, you tell people the British are coming, you don't control how people are going to respond. All you need to do is alert people and let them know. But tell us, wh- where do you think all of this goes? I mean, are, are we going to have accountability with Gavin Newsom? Are we going to have accountability in some way with what Tony Fauci did? Yeah, I think we will. And here's where the, our Fauci research leads to immediate accountability. So we did. We wanted to know whether Tony Fauci was taking third-party royalties. So we filed a Freedom of Information Act request for the entire third-party royalty database at NIH. And so in May of last year, after we sued them for that database, after they ignored our request and they started to produce it, we were able to go out the door with just how much in secret hidden third-party royalties from the pharmaceutical industry back into the National Institutes of Health was over the course of the last 12 years. And incredibly, it was $1.4 billion. And the scientists, the leaders of of NIH, and 2,409 of its scientists split over $300 million. That immediately led to congressional hearings. And Peter, you know about it, because Rand Paul had Fauci in the hot seat at the time, and Fauci twice in Senate hearings, refused to answer the questions on NIH third-party royalties. So fast forward to today. I mean, during the pandemic, you and I and everybody else, we got the sense that big government was very close to big pharma. And now we know exactly how close they are. I just pulled the numbers, breaking news, right on the podcast. Since 2008, on federal contracts into Pfizer, $47 billion. Stunning. And now we know Pfizer is paying third-party royalties back to NIH on its RMNA uh, uh, vaccine on COVID. Moderna, $12 billion in federal contracts. Moderna was made, was set up by NIH specifically to promulgate the RMNA COVID vaccine. Between 
between uh, Moderna and Pfizer in published news reports from their Wall Street uh, filings, they've paid just in the past two years nearly a half billion dollars, $500 million in royalties back to the agency. So in a 12-year period, you had royalties of $1.4 billion that was hidden. And now, just from these pharmaceutical companies, two of them in two years, you've got $500 million on top of it. And, you know, you take a look at the profits of these two companies during the pandemic, 2020 and 2021, and I've added it together, $65 billion in profits just in the past two years into those companies. And that's, a, you know, I did the math on it. It's a thousand bucks a second, every second of every day for two straight years. So if you're the scientist of the Great Barrington Declaration, if you're a local doctor who wanted to prescribe something on COVID because you, you saw it leading to a good outcome with your patients and you lost your medical license, I mean, this is why our voice matters. This is why a public debate on scientific inquiry questioning, skepticism, and all this matters, but it was all put under the heavy boot of government during COVID, and now you get a sense as to why. All the big money was lined up on one side of the trade. Peter, real quickly, uh, I just want to tell you what the pharmaceutical industry did today. They spent $1 million today lobbying Congress. What did they do yesterday? They spent a million dollars. What did they do on Easter, Christmas? They spent $1 million lobbying Congress. We know this from their lobbying disclosures. The industry, incredibly, last year alone, spent $374 million in a year lobbying Congress. There's only 535 members so basically of Congress. You've got the pharmaceutical companies spending uh, millions in lobbying. You've got them sending hundreds of millions in terms of royalties back to the federal government. You've got their profits in the billions because of the forced clientele that the government's sending their way. I mean, that's what we do with the Government Accountability Institute is try to highlight how the incentive structures are set up. People have questions. They say, well, wait, why is it that it was not permitted to like ask questions and to possibly resist a, a vaccine mandate? Like, why did everything seem to line up so much in one way? And I think, as you just detailed, because literally there's a billion reasons why. And so there is uh, no room, no space. No one's making money off of the alternative pushback. And it's just insane to think like you you could like, wait a minute. OK, so COVID happens. It's sort of like very quickly. We partnered with the thing and we basically made everybody take this shot. And I think it's just another data point to set something we say on this podcast all the time and something Peter Schweitzer has been saying for over a decade. Many people think that big government and big business are big enemies, but in fact, the opposite's true, right? They are business partners. And I think you could not have a better and more lucrative example than this. And it's, by the way, an example that fundamentally shaped the face of society, not just in terms of whether or not you had to take a shot, but like families' relationships were fractured as a result of it, right? The amount of what we allow government to do to our physical selves, a precedent was set. So I, I don't think we still have yet to fully reconcile and come to terms with just how impactful the last two years were and how much money people made as a result of it. It's insane. And this worked out so well for so many people. I mean, would you be surprised if we had another pandemic? Uh, even if we don't have another pandemic, like, would we be surprised if it was like, oh, hey, here comes the damn flu. Everybody now take another shot, right? I mean, it's like we, we will look for a way to invent another reason 
for everybody to run back this business model. Why wouldn't they? It was so incredibly profitable the first time. Yeah, the best best business model possible is to create a demand for your own services by using the government to force people to use your product. Uh, great work as always, Adam. We're talking with Adam Angievsky, uh, who's the head of Open the Books. I would encourage you to go to their website, openthebooks.com. I would encourage that you to look at their research and the reporting. Adam, give us your final thoughts. Uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic about this battle uh, that we're having to expose the truth and to bring transparency to government? Well, I'm hopeful and optimistic about the future, Peter. I always am because, this, you know, we're Americans. We've been given the greatest gift in the last 5,000 years of human history, and that's a government that recognizes our rights. They don't come from government. They come from God. We instituted the government to secure our rights and as a, as, as a tool to hold the government accountable. Our founders gave us transparency, right? In Article 1, Section 9 of the Constitution, a regular statement and account of the receipts and expenditures of all public money shall be published from time to time. So we open the books, we audit the books, the audits make national news, and together, Peter, we hold them accountable for tax and spend decisions. I was going to say, Peter and I are also optimistic, but that's because we hold a lot of pharmaceutical stock. So, you know, a different reason. Well, and I was going to say uh, all your reporting has been fantastic, except the fact that Eric Eggers now knows what Tony Fauci was making, uh, and he's going to ask for a raise. Uh, But um, Eric, your final thoughts on this subject. We talked about it before, but again, I I so appreciate the work that Adam and his team uh, does because it's so fact-based. Well, absolutely. And I would say, I mean, that's one thing that I think our organizations have in common, right? We have have a, a phrase here, Adam. Uh, opinions get shrugs, facts get shares, and you guys are in the fact business, and you're in the important fact business. And I think, you know, why did Peter Schweitzer's most important work a decade ago throw them all out? Why did it lead to the passage of legislation? Because it documented the ways in which members of Congress were participating in stock trades that regular Americans wouldn't have had access to because of their access to inside information. That led to the passage of the Stock Act, and hopefully that helped elevate the issue. And I just hope that your reporting on the self-dealing of people that seem to be these sacred cows, these unquestioned rulers of government, both Anthony Fauci and Gavin Newsom at the state and federal level. Uh, I mean, hopefully this just sort of puts the radar, puts the issue on the radar and helps elevate it because that's ultimately what it takes, right? You're not a lawyer. uh, We're not law enforcement. We can't subpoena anyone, arrest anyone, but we can, as Peter Schweitzer says, try to be like Paul Revere and just help raise awareness. And I think with awareness, ultimately comes change. And I very much appreciate the change that I think will come because of the ways in which you guys have raised awareness on these issues. It's insane. It's a great, great job. Well, thank, thanks, Eric. I think, you know, I want to just communicate the message of courage out there because the folks that listen to this podcast, you know, I want to steal your spine. We need individuals of courage to go out on hard facts and hold people accountable. And when we do that, will win these public policy battles. Absolutely right. You've got to have the facts and you've got to have courage. Well, we've been talking to Adam Angievsky. Uh, he's the president, uh, the head of Open the Books, uh, wonderful organization. We encourage you to go to their website, openthebooks.com. And we thank you all for listening to this podcast. As always, you can find it at thedrilldown.com or wherever fine podcasts are located. Uh, Eric and Adam, thanks for joining us. Until next time.